0: To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Hi there, welcome along to a summer reissue of one of our favorite
1: podcasts from the year as the business's boring team takes a break over summer. This episode is a great one for hearing from a two times entrepreneur who is doing something new and different to change up our primary industries. Scotty Chapman had his first success with Old Moot Cider and is now working to make sheep milk a thing which could lower the impact of cows on our country. Enjoy and if there is someone you'd love to hear from get in touch on Twitter at Simon pound. and thanks for listening and having us along with you this year.
0: You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by the spin-off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound.
1: New Zealand is famous all around the world for sheep and for milk, but what it hasn't been so well known for is sheep milk. But today, we're meeting a man out to change that. That's right, sheep milk. It's an alternative milk on the rise across Southeast Asia. It's easier to digest than cow's milk and has a way lower environmental impact than dairy. And although it might sound like it'd take a lot of sheep to get volume up, with some selective breeding and some kiwi smarts, Spring Sheep Milk Co. have found a way to make this primary product into high-value exports. And it's not the first time that that company's CEO has pulled that off. Scotty Chapman had his first big success with Old Moot Cider, the brand he started that led huge category growth, making cider a supermarket mainstay. That business was sold to DB and Heineken, and it's gone on to be one of the biggest ciders in the world. And you know what? When he started that journey, people told him cider wasn't popular. He proved them wrong, and will he also be right about sheep milk? To talk the journey, what sheep milk is used for, and why sheep make a lot more sense for the world than ever more cows. Scotty Chapman joins us now. Kilda, thank you for being here. Kilda Simon, nice to be here. Hey, so first up, um, tell me about tell me about the cider journey because um, you know these days it's a total mainstay. But what was the market like, and what led you to be interested? insider when you set up the company that produced Old Moot?
2: Yeah, I wasn't, it was an accident, as these things often are. We, um, I'd been living in Japan for the previous 13 years, came home, looking for a business to buy and we bought a run-down fruit winery out of receivership to turn it into a drinking vinegar company to export back up to Japan, Korea and Taiwan. So I had a business partner myself. Got some friends and family, and pulled as much money together to actually be able to buy this. And we got, we bought it. We got rid of the whiskey and the gin and all the other products, and just concentrated on the side. Sorry, on the um, on the drinking vinegars. And that was great. That worked for the first year. We sold a lot up to Korea, and then the global financial crisis, and our one customer went bankrupt. I okay. know. So we had a business that. Had the ability, we we had a cider, very very small. Our annual turnover was only five thousand dollars a year. There was no sales for it. Our vinegar wasn't working, and we had a choice of um, closing the doors bankruptcy and losing all our money and our friends and family's money or pivoting as you say politely and going again and we thought we'll have a go at cider but we'll do the opposite of Heineken and be com- this cider had been going since 1947 and it was only the alcoholics and fruit pickers that drank it. It was a shocking product <laughs> and we <laughs> tweaked it a bit and we got it going and we knew that the Magna's effect in the UK had started cider working over there so we said righto let's have a go at this and we went to go along to wine shows and got told we can't because cider's not a wine and went to go to beer shows and got told we can't because it's cider's not a beer and got told we were crazy, etc. But the reason it worked, if you could put it down to little moments, is I was presenting to Countdown and I said, I guarantee you my ciders can, carry, can sell more than your 27th and 28th Sauvignon Blanc you have on the shelf because they had 28 Sauvignon Blancs on their shelf and one old cider. They gave me the listing, I got it on, and the rest was history from then minute it grew.
1: That's so cool. Um, And so you were, like, staring into the face of the global financial crisis and, you, you know, your export model gone. What, what? What was the process that got you to actually back cider over the other opportunities of, you know, doing, a, you, you know, the, the whiskies or the other um, alcohols you were doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I got out of the fetal position of my children's bed and the horror and the scared of losing my friends and family's money, I said, we've got to do something. I'd love to take the credit, but to be fair, it was my business partner at the time said, we've got to have a go at cider. We didn't want to do alcohol. It wasn't our goal. We were trying to do healthy products at the time. But the choices were slim, and we knew that there was, it was working in the UK, and if we got it right, it would work. Then one thing we did really well was implementation. You know, Once we got there, and it was the beginning of social media, we'd go, hey, give us a reason to send you a six-pack of cider on a Friday afternoon. You know, give us your stories, what can you do, make a cider for cider lovers. We, we went very grassroots on social media at the beginning, and we got our timing right. And then the other big break was DB came to us and asked if we would make the Monteith cider for them. So we spent the next few years contract packing all the Monteiths, and then we started getting economies of scale, and then we actually used all the local wineries around Nelson to store our cider because we got so much bigger that we used their, their vats, etc., and all of a sudden it was a very big business.
1: <laughs> so in terms of in terms of cider as a category, it was really neglected, hey, and now it's, it's massive and in every supermarket. And that's such a key thing, isn't it, because you can sell it at the supermarket.
2: Exactly. I mean, Kiwis drank everything. They drank beer and wine. And and there was no room down the middle for anything else. And because of the licensing laws around alcohol, cider actually fitted in there. And it gave people the option. You know, all of a sudden you had another drink. And once we got people to taste it and taste it and taste it, it really, really went well. Now, as you say, it's a mainstream drink.
1: And tell me about the name, the Old Moot. So I imagine it's probably started as many conversations as people, it's confused. Very confused. I mean, everybody will
2: tell you a story about drinking Old Moot. If every story was true, the business would have been big for 50 years. I mean, everyone's got an Old Moot story and yet we weren't selling any for a long time. But Moot comes from the Mooteri Valley. Um, No one can pronounce it. It's a horrific name. And when you're doing a new world cider back up to the old world, calling it Old Moot is ridiculous because it's not old and (laughs) Moot is unpronounceable. So the whole thing, you know, you need a great brand name and all that, that's just... Crap, you just need to be very consistent behind what you do. Any word can do it because that's a shocking brand name
1: and it came off. And tell me about... The stage that it's at now so you sold it a few years ago to DB and Heineken who came knocking and asking you to to make the cider for them yeah and now what well, it's massive overseas isn't it?
2: Yeah so what happened is as soon as they bought it they shut down Australia um, for it, which is fine that's their choice New Zealand it's just sort of ticked on but they took it to the UK and made it really really big and now it's Heineken's second biggest cider in the UK and every Heineken pub you go into there it's it's there.
1: And that's the kind of homicider, isn't it, the
2: UK? It, it, it's the Coles to Newcastle story, yeah. So it's fascinating that it's worked so well. And it's for us, it's really proud. You know, we we grew a business, we sold a business, and that was fantastic. We did well. But those that came and took over have continued to do really, really well, and that's that's something I'm really proud
1: of. And in terms of coming to sell it to a company uh, of the scale of – so DB's the local operating company for Heineken Worldwide. Yes. Uh, pretty big pretty big company. Like, how, how does it feel to have um, – Yeah, to have gone from the stage where people were telling you people weren't interested in cider to then it being the one that you made being the number two in the UK. Yeah, well, they made it that
2: after we had it. Um, But no, it's it's fantastic. And the lesson it taught me was don't do anything that's not scalable. You know, don't be a me too on something else. Find something that's scalable. You can be too early, in which case it's really, really hard. But that timing of getting it right and... You know, it, you're often not the leader. We were following the Magnus effect in the UK where cider had taken off, but for our market it was new. And, yeah, it's really satisfying to know that we've actually set something up that can now scale and will be a global brand for a long time.
1: And after that sale, which I imagine uh, meant you were able to do right by all the friends and family who'd invested as well, what did, you, what did you do then?
2: So my entire career, every seven years, I've taken a year off. It's just something I did unconsciously until last time. The um, old moot journey was a seven-year journey, so I took another year off and sat at home and caught up on other things I should have been doing other than work and looked around for what I was going to do next. And, um, yeah, I was, I was doing a bit of consulting as a way to do due diligence. I bid for a few businesses, didn't get them. I promised myself I'd never do another start It's just too hard. And then I did another start
1: <laughs> And what led you to the world of... Sheep milk. So was there kind of a I I wonder was there a, a sheep milk trailblazer in another country you could take a leaf out of their book of or so, so your cynical laugh we'll <laughs> just have
2: to step aside from at this point because globally at Farmgate, sheep milk is a U was a US eight billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And you're like, ooh, that's interesting. But coming back a step, and and your laugh is completely normal, by the way. That's what everybody does when they talk about sheep milk. (laughs) But uh, I was doing some work. I was doing some consulting work for what was LandCorp then, which is now Pamu. And it was alternative value chains for sheep. And so I spent six months going around the world. I did meat and wool, and I'm off farms and worked in freezing works when I was at university and things. So the meat and wool took about a week. And I went, that's too hard. I don't know how you make money off that. So did pharmaceutical, nutraceutical, blood, collagen, milk, lanolin, all the different things you can do with milk. And, and that's where we worked out, wow, globally, sheep milk's a US $8 billion industry. And, yeah, that doesn't make sense. We never see it. But then you think Roquefort cheese in France is sheep. Manchego in Spain is sheep. Um, feta in Greece is sheep. Pecorino in Italy is sheep. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's quite a lot here. So we went through it and, and then you looked at and sort of said, well, there's sort of 10 million milking sheep in Europe alone. You New Zealand's really good at, f- at um, dairy, and New Zealand's really good at farming sheep. Why don't, why don't we put these together? And, the, and then you go through that decision-making process. Is this a black hole and there's a reason no one's done it before, or is this a genuine opportunity we can scale? And I um, did a little lot of work for Palmer around this, and then I talked to them about, you know, you may want to do this, and they were a, they're a very good farming entity. They're not a front-end sales and marketing company. And where we got to was they came to me and said, would I like to do the front-end and do a joint venture
1: with them? That's so cool that Pāmu. So you know they're they're an enormous uh, landowner in New Zealand, aren't they? they? are they the biggest farmer in New Zealand? Biggest farmer in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, wow, wow. And I imagine that it's a big goal of theirs not to just have more and more. Um, sheep farms converted to dairy as well for the environmental impact
2: that's correct and they've got a really really amazing insightful ceo that said we don't want to do more of the same how can we transform new zealand farming is their tagline and um, it was a really big call for them to go with an entrepreneur as half their business when they're a state-owned enterprise but steve set them up in a way that they did that and you know that was five years ago and it's been a pretty good journey since then
1: so, talk me through how it actually kind of works, because you, you know you, you do laugh at the idea of kind of you know sheep milk as a volume thing, because you just don't see it on the shelves. But you can think of goat milk pretty easily, like you know it's not it's why should it be uh, any any harder? But like. What, what is the reality of it? Like, What does it take to get enough of a yield out of um, sheep to make it worthwhile? Yeah, I mean, that's the question. And before I risked
2: everything, including my children's education in the house and everything again, I knew I had to answer this question because it's a weird one. And the real answer comes down to New Zealand does not have a domestic, econ- a domestic market because it's only 5 million people and it's not a product that we drink. So we have to dry our milk so it can go offshore into whatever format it can be. And... Um, to do that, you have to have enough sheep to get enough scale to turn on an industrial dryer, and that's where it goes. So we had to get big from day one. And so we, we started off with our first farm was 3,500 sheep milking twice a day, um, and you've got different genetics. We bought in embryos from Europe and semen from Europe and created a whole other breed, but we'll, we'll come to that later. Um, but we had to go big enough to do it, and it was, you know, it was tens of millions of dollars investment that we had to put in. It was it a was serious
1: investment. And how does it kind of operate so... Do you have like a big uh, milking shed or do you have small kind of one's bottled around the place or, you know, are sheep easy to kind of um, drive to where you need them to be? <laughs>
2: it's all of the above. So the first first shed we built is um, technical, I'm sorry, but Herringbone 2, 48-a-side um, parlours, so it's a very big shed. Um, and in the second year, we didn't have a barn originally, we just left them outdoors like a New Zealand system, that was one of the mistakes we made. Now we have barns where they can be indoors and outdoors and what happens is in summer, during the day they'll be inside, then they'll go and get milked and at night they'll go out and eat grass. And in winter it's the opposite, whereby they're indoors at night and outside during the day. Because if they're shivering or hot or it's windy, they're burning energy and not giving milk. So it's exactly the same concept as a cow dairy farm. You've just got two cups instead of four, and um, yeah, there's it's. We had to bring in the breeds from Europe because it's like trying. If you milked a New Zealand sheep, it's like trying to milk an Angus cow. You know, you've got Frisians for dairy and you've got Angus for meat. It's the same in the sheep world. And New Zealand didn't have any dairy sheep. So we bought all we could find in New Zealand, which was just a couple of thousand and not very good. And then we did a whole embryo um, program, as I mentioned, from Europe. And we got the best of all around the world, bought them in, and um, they're now the basis of our nuclear flock.
1: What's the difference between sheep milk and cow's milk? Because there are claims around it that it is kind of more digestible and more... Um, more akin to A2 milk than the A1 milk, which is, you know, the the great big volume milk for dried milk powder in the world.
2: That's right. And yes, all sheep milk milk is A2, but that's only part of the story. So it is more digestible for a human than cow's milk. Um, there's a whole lot of science behind it. We went straight in and did clinicals as soon as we started the business. And the clinicals are coming out now showing it is more digestible for, for humans than cow's milk. So those that are allergic to cow's milk, well, allergics too strong those that have digestive issues around cow's milk in most cases have absolutely no problem with sheep's milk
1: and how about for the younger kids as well because that's where it really you get that lactose intolerance around the a1 uh, and cow's milk
2: yeah we we target infant nutrition um, we have what we call the most gentle and the most precious milk in the world so we target the most precious consumer and Infant formula is the um, main product that we're pushing down now. The reason for that is if you think about an infant, their sole source of nutrition is dairy. Now, one day that woke me up in the middle of the night because all the infant is eating is your product that you're giving them. There is nothing else. So if it cannot provide everything, you've got issues. The consumer we're getting is the infant that is having issues on cow's milk. So you're talking newborn babies that cannot digest cow's milk well are our primary consumer. So we have the most precious consumer in the world. So we have to make sure we have the best product for them.
0: Kira, this is Jane, Podcast
1: Manager at The Spinoff. I do hope you're enjoying this lovely podcast, which is only possible like all the other content on The Spinoff thanks to the support of The Spinoff members. If you'd like to help us continue to bring you homegrown and independent journalism that's free for everyone, please visit members.thespinoff.co.nz. And so the majority of the, the stuff you're making is infant powder. And selling that through Southeast Asia. What are the special considerations around infant powder? Because it's kind of this, um, you know, it's kind of the new gold for New Zealand in so many ways overseas, as it is our primary um, production specialty, but with some IP and some value add on. Uh, and, And, you know, if you look at the journey of like an A2 milk, which everyone would have heard of. The vast majority of their rise has been infant powder into Asia.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting category. It's incredibly regulated, as it should be, because you're dealing with such a sensitive consumer. Um, There's certainly value there, but it's a very, very rigid and difficult place to play. So we're five years in. We've been testing everything To the max for the last five years and it's only been the last 12 months we've been doing infant formula more and more of our product is going over there now but we've been doing probiotic powders and a whole lot of other uh, nutrient products until then Um, infant formula while difficult if you get it right is a very very valuable product
1: and Uh, We were saying just before the podcast that, um, you know, we won't be pouring sheep milk on our cereal anytime soon. But on the website, there are pictures of kind of sheep milk in the glass. How does that relate to the um, the infant formula side of things?
2: Yeah, so with infant formulas, you aren't allowed to advertise them because we all believe breast is best. And, you know, mums, if they can, it's best that the baby has that. So companies do not have the ability to push in and pressure mothers not to use breast milk. Um, so that we can get the goodness of sheep milk out there and get our consumers to understand, when we sell it on the shelf, beside the infant formula, we'll have the whole milk powder. And the whole milk powder lets us tell about the digestibility of sheep milk, the nutritional content of sheep milk, and and all the benefits it has, so the mother can then correlate it back to these these are the products we have.
1: And how do you build those markets overseas? So it's been kind of a a five-year journey and five sell-out years uh, so, so far, I saw. Yeah, how, how do you go about building out those markets? Are people more receptive throughout Southeast Asia to the idea of sheep milk? You know, is it already part of the, the kind of um, supermarket or dairy culture?
2: Yes and no. I mean, they, to them, dairy isn't only cow. They're much more open-minded around that. I mean, how we built it up is, year one, I wanted to go to Taiwan and Korea. I mean, we were doing this from cold. We put the ram out. We knew we had five months until the lambs were born and we had to start selling the milk. So I jumped on an airplane and spent a lot of time in Taiwan originally. Um, We sold everything out the first year. That was around probiotic powders, which is whole milk powder plus probiotics. Um, The next year we added in Malaysia. The next year we added in Vietnam. And now we're just starting a cross-border e-commerce, which is selling in New Zealand for the Chinese market. Um, It's... It has been popular with what's happened with COVID and things. Everything's slowed down right now, but it doesn't matter. We've, well, actually, COVID increased our sales, and, and as soon as China went back, we sold out for this year as well. So it's, it's time on the ground. It's a lot of influence. Funnily enough, it's very similar to what we were doing with Old Moot in the early days, where you talk to your influencers, and you, you have to have a pull strategy as much as a push
1: and in terms of the supply side of uh the piece so you're are there other sheep farmers you know sheep milking farmers involved uh, other than your farms with with palmu, or what's the idea there would you love to kind of like see a whole bunch of these sheep stations that got converted to dairy converted back, maybe? They're coming back now.
2: So we did the first three farms ourselves. We did a large scale one, which we're using as a showcase for corporate farms, your iwi groups and things like that. Um, we did a pure outdoor model in the middle of the Waikato, which was came back from a dairy farm. And we our showcase farm is an indoor outdoor model in the Waikato as well that came from a dairy farm. So first three farms were ours. Last year, we pulled our first supplier, external supplier in from Karaka This year we've got three more farms coming on next month um, all around the Waikato. Next year we'll do another five farms from external suppliers. And yes, you're finding dairy farms in the Waikato, the smaller ones that have been around for 100 years that are now getting pressure. It's environmental pressure as much as financial pressure. And those guys we're bringing back and and bringing back the sheep.
1: Talk us through the environmental impact because the only way to really put more cows on land is to add more nitrogen or let more stuff kind of leach off the land, isn't it? But how, how many more sheep can you kind of sustain on the same land?
2: Many. So yeah, it's just got a lower environmental footprint. We're doing a lot of work at the moment on testing all of that. Um, the science says somewhere between 30 and 50 percent less environmental damage than cow dairy with a sheep dairy model. We'll keep working on that, but yes, it's, it's a lot easier on the land. You don't need as much nitrogen and um, it's a beautiful thing, and the reason, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this business is we have the best product for a consumer, and that's my lens. You know, I've lived in consumer's world for a long time, and it's what I do, and we know our product is great for our consumer. We also have a product that is amazing for the land that we farm on and really, really good options for New Zealand farmers to come across. So we're good for the environment and good for the consumer, and there's so many other benefits we can do on the way through. So we've got end-to-end benefits that really makes getting out of bed in the morning, doing your job a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, like right up to the emissions, I'll bet, as well as as cows through their multiple stomachs and heaps of methane (laughs) are, um, you know, it's it's cow burps that are the big problem, isn't it?
2: Funnily enough, we've been doing some methane tests. This is getting left field now, but, and it's not surprising, sheep that give off less methane give you more milk. And if you think about that, they're simply digesting it better. So they're utilising their energy source better. So I think you'll find over time that those with lower methane emissions are actually better yielders anyway. So that's one of the many projects we're working on in the background.
1: Right. And I, I read somewhere that you'd said that you know you're on to, and you know, paraphrasing you terribly here, you know you're onto to the right kind of area if people are telling you you're nuts. Can you talk me through that a little bit, having taken two businesses that people said, you, you know, I imagine people said, what are you up to with um, sheep milk in the same way they said, what are you up to? with
2: cider? I remember three because the first one was a drinking vinegar company that probably was a good idea but it was before its time and combuch has taken that place now. Right. But um, when if you want something to be able to scale and you want to be able to have a margin on it you can't be a me too product. And, and cider to me filled a great spot between beer and wine and it was already going off in other markets. Sheep milk's not new. We're not reinventing anything. We're doing a different format and we're putting it down the infant formula path that well, one other company's done it but not many have so far. But If you do more of the same, you're going to get the same result, right? And so by doing something completely different, and what I've learned on the way through is if it's scalable and no one else wants to do it, if it's not a black hole, you know, is it just going to suck money and never come right? It's worth having a go at. And to me, actually, the sheep milk's really similar to the cider and that it's an incredibly scalable market. It's a product that consumers are demanding. It's a really good place to be, and if people are scared of it, that's good because it gives me more time to get it right.
1: And there was six months of heavy validation in the you know before committing to it as well, wasn't there? Yeah, but um, our validation is
2: completely different to what we did. So what we said we'd be doing we weren't going to be doing infant formula, we were going to be doing food, not nutrition. There's lots of things. It's okay. Strategy is just a a pivotal line that you work through, but culture and having good people that can change and and make it work, that's what matters. Because the business plan you wrote seven years ago isn't going to work today. And by the way, the business plan you wrote pre-COVID is not going to work either. Mm. You know, you have to be able to flex and go, and that's one thing that we've been really good at.
1: What size is the market now for this, and how big do you think it could get?
2: Um, If you take... Goat milk is the proxy, it's about a $14 billion, infant formula is about a $14 billion market globally of which two thirds in China. Um, we have aspirations in the next five years will be a $100 million turnover and we have aspirations to be a billion, we're, we're not scared of having aspirations to grow. This will become an industry for New Zealand and everything we're doing is about making it a mainstream New Zealand industry over the next 20 or 30 years.
1: And as mentioned before, if you take the A2 milk or the Sinle as uh, as your proxies, that's exactly what they did. They carved out a little bit of that um, of that infant milk formula market with the A2 niche yeah. and then went big. Yep.
2: No, it's, it's very, very doable. And we're luckily enough to have the resources around us through both people and capital to be able to make the scale. And, you know, the best thing we have right now is the team around us, above, below, all around this and fantastically passionate, good people working in this. With...
1: Yeah, what advice do you have for people who are looking to, uh, yeah, to carve out their own piece or their own niche in 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 uh, in business?
2: Get advice from everyone and listen to your gut. So don't believe the experts, but listen to the experts. And at the end of the day, you just have to jump, but surround yourself with good people, and and trust trust your gut.
1: And having uh you know, being through the whole journey of uh, of success once and and being on a, an, another really growing kind of, um, you know, the, holding on to the, the tail of a tiger, what will success be for you? What keeps kind of driving you?
2: Yeah, I, it's a really interesting question. So I, I have a personal purpose, and if I live to it, things are always easier, and that's to inspire open minds and share joy so that those I touch can do more. And I have that at the base of everything I do. And I'm really, really good at holding that as my thought pattern. And when all those around me do that, this business grows. So I don't actually run the business anymore. I just run the culture and oversee. Because if people are empowered and doing well, it does so much better. So for me, seeing my people grow, and they've taken over from me now. You know, My number two does 90% of my job now. This is already now on the tipping point it's going to scale success for me is just watching it become an industry in New Zealand you know you're driving down to Hamilton and look at the Waikato and you see sheep instead of cows that's a good thing for New Zealand and it's a good thing for consumers so I'm just relaxed I'm I'm not doing any more of these I'm done but I'm happy from a spring sheep perspective to see this become an industry for New Zealand and from my people perspective to help grow people so they can help others
1: and as a last thought you mentioned early on that you spent uh, some years in Japan what do you think that international perspective or kind of understanding the scale of one of the most, you know, fantastically at scale cultures in the world and living in, uh, in, in Asia and Southeast Asia, what do you think that's done to help you with that idea of scaling from the get-go? I think
2: it taught me to think in a different way. So one, you're living in a different language anyway, so your mind's in a different place and you know there's so much more out there and your lens is not right. Your lens is just your lens. It's not wrong either. It's just a lens. But I've, you know, all my corporate experience, I worked for um, corporates for about 12 years, that was all in Japan, um, surrounded by Japanese, which was my, you know, my first job in New Zealand was my own company with the cider. It was, it was a bizarre experience. But it taught me that there's many different ways to do things, and that's okay. And don't, you know, if it's not scalable, don't do it. Because everything you did there just had more zeros on it because there's more people. So I've, I've always known that I have to export to get the scale. But I love living in New Zealand and I love doing it out in New Zealand. I just happen to work in those markets. Oh, that's so cool.
1: Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Can't wait to see uh, where you take things with the Spring Sheep Milk Co. Uh, thanks for joining us. That's the CEO and founder, Scotty Chapman. Cheers, Simon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tina Tilla, for producing and thank you very much for
0: having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring presented by Simon Pound and brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network that was Business is Boring brought to you by Lab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on Sparklab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective.